Welcome to Intangibles Podcast. I'm Steve Berg, your host. Success is driven by how as much as by what. How we communicate, how we lead, how we relate to our environment are all vitally important. Intangibles is a podcast that explores the underlying traits, qualities, and behaviors that improve the how. This is accomplished by finding the people who have studied and been successful practicing these soft skills and having informed conversations with them to get to what is learnable. Let's begin. Muhammad Ali said, The fight is won or lost far away from the witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym, and out there on the road, long before I dance under those lights. One could see this as a quote about hard work or preparation or self-reliance. When I think about this quote in the context of entrepreneurship, it reminds me that there's no such thing as an overnight success. Very, very few people show up fully gifted and ready for greatness. They have molded themselves through hard work and tough-mindedness into what they need to be to achieve greatness. There's a fable out there called Chop Wood, Carry Water, about this very idea, and many others about performance, written by Joshua Medcalf. Mr. Medcalf is a pretty thoughtful, self-aware guy. One of the more remarkable things about him is he dropped out of his master's program at Duke University, skipped scholarships to law school, and moved across the country into a homeless shelter to serve people. He's written many books, including the aforementioned. He started businesses, he's lectured, he's worked with high-profile collegiate sports programs, and there's much more, which I'll let him fill in. I could be talking with Joshua about a number of topics, but what I'm going to focus on today is tough-mindedness. So let's get started. Hello, Joshua. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on Intangibles Podcast. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm grateful and excited to be here. So, as I said, the topic today is tough-mindedness, which, frankly, it's not that uh, clearly definable, at least in my opinion. Uh, I don't do this usually, but what I wanted to do to start out uh, is with some actual true or false questions so that we can get an idea of what tough-mindedness is. So if you could answer whether or not each of the following uh, play a part in tough-mindedness, and then also kind of if you have any extra thoughts as well, I think we can use this to frame the topic. Is that okay? Sounds good. Okay. So stubbornness. Uh, and or single-mindedness, kind of like tough-mindedness, but I'm not sure. What do you think? Um, yeah, it definitely plays a role at times. It can be used in beneficial and constructive ways. It can also be you know, used to someone's detriment, but it definitely plays a part for sure. Yeah, I find that one really hard because, yeah, there's something that's in the gray area about that that's important. Um the other thing that I, another thing I find about tough-mindedness, which uh, I'm, I'm wondering about, is the battle against the mundane or unglamorous. Is that tough? Is that part of tough-mindedness to you? Absolutely. Yeah, it's big. I think actually, um, determination, uh, whether it be grit or willpower, I'm going with a absolute yes. Yes. Cool. Um, I think people don't think about this one, but resilience? Yes. Okay, we're, we're, we're getting down the line quick. Um, I also think of tough-mindedness as a long view on what it means to achieve. Would you agree? That one, I think, 
can get kind of murky. I think you'd need to, you know, kind of hash that out a little bit. Okay. More, but All right. I mean, it definitely, definitely has aspects in there that could apply. Okay. Um, and then finally, tough-mindedness is kind of the ability to endure repetition. Yes, along with many other things. All right. So, of though, I mean, those are kind of the high-level definition to me, and in particular, the stubbornness and single-mindedness was where I was stumbling a little bit. Uh, are there any other important embodiments of tough-mindedness to you that we should include in that list? Yeah, so I, I don't know that I've ever thought about it with those specific words that you're using of tough-mindedness. Yes. Um, we, uh, I believe very strongly and have uh, spoken about, written about quite a bit of linguistic intentionality. And so I think that, you know, the specific words matter and uh, things like that. And so the way that we have kind of, uh, you know, similar words, not the exact same thing, but the way we define true mental toughness is having a great attitude, giving your very, very best, treating people really, really well, having unconditional gratitude, regardless of your circumstances. And so that's how we have defined, you know, true mental toughness, which it sounds like, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, where you're going a little bit with tough mindedness. I don't think they're the exact same thing, but um, that's what we've spent a lot of time writing, researching, and experimenting with both personally, professionally, and with the people that we have the opportunity to work with. Yeah. Well, there's there's definitely a Venn curve between mental toughness and tough mindedness. I think, um, yeah, what, as we go forward, whatever of the two that you want to talk about, certainly feel, you know, feel free, don't feel confined. Um, by my word choice. Um, one thing I noticed is that to many folks, uh, this notion of uh, mental, I mean, mental toughness for, for, you know, to use your parlance, seems like an inner force. And um, many people, I think, believe that you either have it or you don't. Um, there was a, a long time ago, I trained at Gleason's Boxing Gym in Brooklyn. And my trainer, a guy by the name of Roosevelt Farrell, he had two fighters that he trained at the same time, and he'd put them side by side, and he'd make them do sit-ups until they were just completely gassed. And then, of course, Rosie would say, okay, it's the 10th round. I need one more sit-up. And somehow, one of those guys would always be able to find it in him to do one more sit-up, and, and sometimes maybe even one more after that, but the other guy never could. So here's the question. In that moment, some people summon up this force of will where others don't. Um, is tough-mindedness or mental toughness, is that, is that learned or is that just innate? Uh, I definitely don't think that it's just innate. Um, I don't think that there's almost anything in life that is just purely innate. Um, I think that it's a combination of our DNA. I think it's a combination of our environment. And then I think it's a combination of the the choices that we make that then tend to become our habits. Um, because I also think that it's contextual. So there's a lot of people that have tried to um, create little exercises like that. Yeah. And that's definitely a way of, you know, observing, you know, something in those two human beings. Um, but I, I think that the context matters a lot. I, I don't 
I, I wouldn't necessarily say that just because that one guy could do this, that it's going to directly correlate to, um, you know, something in the 10th round. I played um, a, a lot of sports growing up. I, I, I still play golf very competitively. Um, it's probably the thing I chop wood and carry water on the most in any given uh, week. I just got done spending two hours at a at a golf store bending clubs and getting, you know, different clubs and fixing things for my game. Um, so I've been around sports a lot, worked with a lot of different people in sports, played soccer in college, uh, ended up playing on the number one team in the country. And there's tons, especially in soccer, there's tons of tests that they try and do, especially in preseason to get you, quote unquote, ready for the season. And the funny thing is I've known tons of people that test really well on tests that are supposed to determine a lot of, you know, who is the tough minded, you know, person or who has more mental toughness. And what I can tell you flat out is that there's not always a direct correlation to the person that tests the best and the person that actually on the field is going to be able to play 90 minutes or going to be able to play 110 minutes if the game goes to overtime. So it's, you know, I, I just think that there's so much contextually. And, you know, if you, even if you look at, um, you know, anecdotal, um, you know, stories about women that are able to lift cars off of their children and things like that, whenever, you know, they're in stressful situations, I, I just don't know if, um, yeah, it's just hard for me with, with little kind of what I would call is almost like gimmicky tests like that, um, because we just don't know what's going to happen in the moment um, when somebody needs to. I believe in training. I believe in putting the, the work in. Um, but but just because you're able to do it in a test, um, I'm not sure that that always equates to that you're going to be able to do it in a real-life scenario. Okay, so let, let me try and get it a different way then. Like, what would you tell each of these um, gentlemen um, in terms of, like, kind of getting them to take that into themselves and you know learn it I'm not sure is exactly the right way but to embrace it in a way that 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 gives them the best chance to continue to forge forward yeah honestly the most interesting thing about this specifically and I'm sorry if this is a tiny bit of a tangent but what I've seen is that um again, with the people that we've worked with in, especially in college sports, but even sometimes in professional sports, there's always a little bit of this kind of gaming of the system. And so what you'll see oftentimes is that uh, somebody will kind of uh, keep it in the tank and they will keep reserves in the tank and they won't actually um, really do a, you know, the whole blowout uh, because they're trying to save more because they know that that last final thing is coming. Um, so it's, it's the, those type of examples are a little bit, bit tricky because there's so much psychology that goes into, you know, what's going on in, um, in, in the minds of, of each of those individuals when they're going through something like that. Yeah. It's so interesting that you put it that way. I, I, um, this is a long time ago. I was training for a marathon and um, I went out for a run with a partner and uh, we were just going through the English countryside and I'd never run it before. And I, I frankly, I didn't know where the end was. I didn't know how long this run would go. And right. so I, I didn't know how to budget my tank for the finish line. 
And um, the net result of it was that was the best training run that I had leading up was this idea where I I, I, I couldn't make the calculation about what the end would be. And that, that made a big difference. So it's interesting that you, you would frame it that way. Um, so, you know, I'm going to go back then to the things that you said that you added on to the definition or the, so, so some of the, um, the um, descriptors. And I think you said um, uh, humility was an important part of the process. Maybe we can kind of talk about how, you know, process and practice, humility, patience, self-awareness, maybe we can talk about how those actually fit together into this, um, you know, your, your, your framework of mental toughness. Yeah, sure. Love to. So the, the question is, if I think about some of the, um, the importance, uh, of how some of the pieces that you, that, you know, as we define them fit together, um, it would be interesting if you could comment on how you relate it to people that you work with. And so I assume that in, in defining it, humility is part of it. Um, process and practice is part of it. Uh, patience is part of it. So what if we break them down and, and kind of talk about them each individually? Yeah, so patience for sure, without a doubt, is one of the biggest factors. It's one of the biggest challenges, I think, um, especially in this specific time and place and era that we're living through where our brains are being conditioned with everything being more instant. We need it, you know, this second. We need to, you know, be able to have everything at our fingertips. We need it all right now. We need instant delivery. We need, we do, we, we just have so, our brains are being so conditioned to instant gratification that it's, um, it's very, very challenging when it comes to pursuing, you know, these long-term uh, objectives or ideals or mastery that takes so much time, so much patience, so much dedication. Um, so yeah, so patience is 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 very antithetical to the very you know ways our brains are being wired based off of everything that's uh, in our environment in this uh, this time that we're living through. Um, humility is a little bit different. Um, because there's a lot of perverted humility out there that's not actual humility. Um, there's a lot of people that are masquerading um, uh, pride as as humility. Um, that's a little bit deeper to get into. But what I like to to you know try and dissect with people is is really figuring out where somebody falls. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some people that they, they need to work harder and there's some people that they need to work smarter. There's some people that need to, um, put people first because they're so, you know, goal oriented and so objective focused that they trample people in the process. So most of the time, whenever I'm working with somebody, it's trying to help them, uh, become more aware of, who they are and where they're at on that spectrum, because otherwise, um, you know, so it's, it's even interesting when you, uh, it, it's part of why we defined true mental toughness. And we use that word specifically because there's a lot of people that talk about tough mindedness, you know, mental toughness, 
And I think that there's some aspects of that, that, yeah, if you're just talking about pure, you know, mental toughness, sure. That's being able to continue running with a broken ankle and, you know, or a torn meniscus, or there are certain things that, yeah, that's just pure, um, you know, mental toughness. Now, is that most beneficial? Is that most beneficial for life? Is that most beneficial for our relationships? Is that most beneficial in terms of who we become and in terms of whether we can have peace on our deathbed about who we are, how we lived, and who we became? Um, and, And they're very different things, I believe. So when it comes to, you know, humility, um, it's, it's, it's very hard because I think whenever you're, you're working with someone, it's trying to help them understand who they really are. Because in my experience, most people, their levels of actual self-awareness are very low. They, um, you know, they either live in an echo chamber or they have intentionally blinded themselves to a lot of their faults. And that's what a lot of, you know, very, uh, quote unquote, successful people do, um, in order to just kind of have the blinders on and, and keep, you know, blindly running ahead like a horse in a race, which is helpful for that race. It, it, it's not always helpful for the other aspects of their life. And that's oftentimes where the, um, the other issues come up in their life of great. You were really good at finance. Great. You were really good at your job. Great. You were really good uh, in your sport but you sacrificed a lot of this other stuff at the altar of potentially winning. And so, I mean, true humility, yes, incredible, awesome, amazing. Um, But especially with young people, um, and and then this even gets into a little bit of males and females, and predominantly the the females that I work with, they struggle with – conviction and um and confidence and self-belief and so they will err on the side of quote-unquote humility but really it's it's them them hiding from their potential and their greatness so i'm not worried about them being humble i might actually have them do stuff that helps them get a bigger head i'll never forget the first kid that i was working with so after i was in the the homeless shelter living and serving there for six months. I moved into the closet of a gym and I was working with some kids in the, in, in this area. And then I was working with the kids in the housing projects in, in Watson, South central. And the very first kid I worked with Eric sheets. Um, I was talking to his dad one day after training him and, and his dad said, well, you know, I don't want him getting a big head. And I said, I do. And he was like, what? And I was like, look, I can deal with him having a big head way easier than I can him not having confidence and not having a belief in his ability. So let's, if we can get him all the way to him having a big head, sure, that, that's easy to deal with. And the funny thing about that is that life has a great way of dealing with people that um, have that type of, you know, uh, lack of humility. Life is really good at grounding people and knocking us on our butt. But, but, but breeding that actual true conviction, which is even deeper than confidence, um, I, I think is, is very rare and you don't see it that often. And so then, yes, there's on the other side, you know, when you have uh, certain males and especially males that have achieved something, they have what I would call arrogance and they have a lot of that, but really, again, that's, that's, that's that pride and, 
and weird stuff that's kind of uh, under, underneath what you're really trying to get to is we're trying to get people to be able to, yes, operate with true humility of, you know, you respect all your opponents, but you fear none. And also that, that um, just more of that place of an understanding that you've put in the work, you've done everything that you can do. You have trained, you have not, you're not born for this. You are built for this. You've trained for this. Um, and then that gives you a level of conviction and, um, and kind of more of that purity of heart and mind to be able to step up and into an environment. And it's not taking anything away from anybody else, but it's understanding who you are and the, uh, you know, the authority isn't the best word, but kind of like, but similar to it, like the authority that you have in that space to do the thing that you do. Um, Maybe agency, yeah, that's... maybe agency within the space to do it. But you, yeah. you, you're, you're, you know, you're right. I mean, it, it's it's so clear when I see false humility or false um, preparation, um, and, and it's also clear that it is not one size fits all. And I, I think you're touching on, you know, really important yeah. things about how they fit together. Um, I was going to go on to um, practice, but I think I'm going to incorporate that into a discussion of mastery, if you don't mind. So. When I think about mastery or becoming a master, it also seems to me to come from inner desire. Um, you talk about, um, I like this expression, beating on your craft. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think about this as the, the passion to endure repetition, hard work, and also exactitude, which I think is an important part of it that, that's required for mastery. And I've got a, a, a number of questions here. The, the first one is, so repetition... Hard work, exactitude, these are grinds, right? And very few people, at least I don't know about you <laughs> in terms of what you've run into, but very people I know love the grind. Um, and you've also said you cannot cheat the grind. There, there's no shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it seems as though one can build a process to learn to love it so that the grind is not cheated. But how is so, so hard? Um, it seems very tough. How does one achieve... It, it, even like first the proper mindset to put the process in place to love the grind. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the trillion dollar question, right? Um, well, I'm good, it's I, good to know I, that I, that, I, that, I, that I, at least I'm asking the right one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. And I think it, it, it sometimes comes in and goes. I think it's, I think there's also though a little bit of this, like, to me, it's a little bit like in relationships with love and in falling in love versus choosing to love somebody. And, you know, I know a few people that would say that, you know, that have been married for 30 or 40 years, that they're still in love with their spouse. I know a lot more people that have made it 30, 40, 50 years that have said that they wake up every day and they choose to love their spouse. And um, to me, that's kind of the difference. Sure. There may be a few people out there in the world that are, um, both um, blessed enough in the sense that they love the thing that they get to do and they're good enough at it, um, you know, DNA, environment, et cetera. They've had enough things that are outside of their control on top of the stuff that, you know, the choices that they've made to be able to make money or get a scholarship or do something inside of that thing that they love. Um, but, but most of the time, I think that it's, it's a choice and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mindset shift and it's a heart posture shift 
around falling in love with the process instead of falling in love with the results, which again is so incredibly hard in the society that we live in because the society that we live in praises the results. It does not praise the the work, the craft, the things that go into it. Maybe they do praise the craft if you have the results, but if you don't, I can't tell you how many people have said, oh yeah, well, you know, Tony Bennett may do things the right way, but he's never won a national championship. And then now that he finally won the national championship, okay, well, you know, but, and, and there's just all these excuses. We're just, we live in such a, um, a results driven world. And then sometimes we, we make that even more um, magnified by the fact that, you know, we kind of live by the sword, die by the sword. So we will, um, you know, a lot of coaches will, as soon as they get a quote unquote better opportunity or a higher paying opportunity, they'll jump ship and go to the next place and say, and the pitch that they give is, oh, well, yep, we're going to win. This is what we're going to do. This is exactly, you know, we're going to win a conference. We're going to win a championship. We're going to do this. And then when it doesn't happen, that's the, the mark that they're, you know, judged based off of. Uh, you know, I, I love what Matt Campbell has done at Iowa State. Um, another one of the people that we've had the privilege of working with where he got lots of offers. I, I believe and have believed ever since I, since I met him that he is probably the, the next, you know, version of a Nick Saban. And he chose not to leave. He said, I'm going to stay here. Well, guess what? That means that he's going to have a lot more, um, you know, bandwidth <laughs> and, and leeway because he's not bringing this stuff on to him. So both in our external environment of the world that we live in and the media and everything that glorifies, you know, you know, the overnight success and success and tries to make it look more quick than it was, but also, um, you know, the choices that we make, it's that combination that then puts more pressure on us because then we have to cheat the process to try and rig the results. But then when you do that, you just constantly, you know, end up putting yourself further and further behind the eight ball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say the same thing about the basketball coach for Gonzaga, right? He has not gone anywhere. And as a result of that is, yeah, built something. Um, but, you know, to your point, you know, Sports Center shows a highlight reel. They don't show the practice reel. Right. And so, you know, they're, 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 they're setting people up to only think about that kind of end results without the all the all the things that go into getting that result right there's just so very few people that are just ready you know, walk in born ready um not not, so, a, not to interrupt you but not only do they that do that but now you know in the last 10 years they've incorporated the not top 10 and i would argue that most of the kids that i work with are more afraid of being on not top 10 than they are of being uh the excitement of being on the top 10 I'll never forget, yeah, the, the power of, you know, the negative, you know, you know, in, like in, in the financial world, the power of loss, you know, being greater than, than the gain. And, but it's, you know, I, I'll never forget sitting uh, after a game with a team that we were working with and we look up and, you know, somebody gets dunked on and they jumped and tried to block it. And, you know, one of the kids was like, oh, what an idiot. I can't believe that they jumped. And so then they, it's like that, that part of the process of, attempting and failing is demonized is is shameful and shame you know is one of the most powerful you know forces in human behavior and the, the negative impacts that that are around that 
Yeah, God forbid your face should be on the poster of so and so dunking the ball, right? Um, exactly. Um, so look, I, I, you know, we talked about the hard work piece of that, but I don't think that many people really understand what it means to work hard. And and by the way, often through no fault of their own. I mean, all, I feel it almost generationally. And my my son, uh, who enters the conversation about podcasts frequently, I don't. He's, he hasn't had a lot of people. Um, that that have that have kind of put him to the task of really working hard, and when he finds those people, he kind of tries to avoid them. So, um, right. So part so part one of the of the question is, in your experience, what does it mean to really work hard? What is what 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 does someone need to be willing to do? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, it depends. I think on what the what the thing is that they're um, you know trying to do, because I think that there's a lot of work hard porn out there um, that's not helpful as well. So it's not just working hard. Um, You know, I've written before and talked about that not all hard work is created equal. Um, You know, it, it, it depends on the thing that you're trying to do um, and what, you know, what your craft is and when you're trying to peak, Um, you know, there's so many different factors that go into it. Um, when it comes to uh, a lot of stuff, though, I would say, um, and especially, I, I guess, one thing, one point to make with what I just said is the difference between short game and long game. So if you're in something that you have the luxury of playing for the long game, um, you know, somebody that is, you know, trying to build a business, somebody that is an artist, um, you know, an entrepreneur, um, you know, the, the, there, there are certain aspects, certain things where they have more um, of the opportunity to focus on the long game and there's not a, a, a time clock on them. Whereas, you know, there are certain things, uh, you know, somebody that plays a sport that may not have, um, you know, the opportunity to then play at the next level and they're in the last three months of their career, um, you know, I would encourage them and be coaching them and would be encouraging their coaches that they probably want to be training differently than just the put your head down and, you know, gas yourself out every single time. They're trying to peak their performance for those three months that they have left in their career. Um, You look at somebody like Urban Meyer, who is, you know, notoriously known as one of the hardest workers around. He almost killed himself. Um, and again, there's that, that's that kind of hard work porn that I'm talking about, um, that it's, it's not just about working hard. Now, simultaneously, I think that kind of what you alluded to with the next generation and, um, you know, things like that. Yes, there is, there's a, a general sense of, um, we've lost an appreciation for what hard work actually is and how easy things are for us Um, i'm living a nomad life right now with no home and kind of going back and forth between the tahoe area and southern california and last week we were up in tahoe and went someplace that i'd never been before and there was this this sign that was posted next to this island uh, in the middle of this bay and it talked about this this guy that had um he had he had, he would he was known to go to this saloon that he had to 
covered the entire lake, you know, to get across to the saloon. And one time he got caught in a storm, you know, in his, in his paddle boat crossing the lake and ended up, you know, it was a freezing storm. He ended up having to amputee, you know, two of his toes to live. And I just was thinking about it and it's like, you know, how many people in our society today are willing to do that, to go to a saloon, you know, like to do anything, like we just don't have to work as hard as the people that have come before us. And so, yeah, we have lost an appreciation or respect for that level of work that goes into anything. Yeah. So I'm glad to know that flipping over tractor tires is not uh, a, a good definition for hard work anymore. Um, so I, I guess the follow on, though, is so sometimes a novice, and again, I'm referring to my son, will think that they're working hard, but masters, they know, they know that they're not. Um, yeah. How, how does one, in, in your experience, again, as you're working with people who might not know the difference, how does one actually know that they are working hard and doing what it takes instead of merely thinking that they're working hard? Well, that's where outside coaching becomes so paramount um, because it, it, it doesn't, matter how great somebody is at something you know maybe minus some artists maybe minus some entrepreneurs but if you look at people at the highest level of their craft especially in sports in sports it's easier um and it's it's harder because it's more of a zero-sum game um you know in in business the the top 50 are all doing great and they you know they have their own metrics that they get to use to judge themselves. And Forbes may say, Oh, you know, they're all up here. Well, you know, if you're just in the top 50 in your sport, that doesn't, you know, do very good for you. You're not going to get very far. So if you look at them, they're a pretty good model in terms of all of them have coaches. Tiger Woods always had a coach. He's the greatest golfer to ever touch a golf club, but he always had a coach and he went through many coaches constantly trying to, get better because we need outside eyes to help us. We, we need people that can say, yes, I know that it feels like this. And, and there's also multiple ways from an outsider to get somebody, you know, that understanding, you know, we believe more in transformational leadership and we teach transformational leadership and leading with empathy and respect and, you know, making sure that, uh, that you have your own shirt tucked in before you're trying to, you know, get other people to follow by all of your rules and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of models that have come before from the military and old school coaches that have shown that there's just the, the hardcore way of teaching people those things as well. I don't think that's as long-term beneficial for the health of that person's soul and some of their relationships but there's multiple ways to get people to that understanding of, I thought that I knew what it was to work hard, but really I was just able to get by on my skill and talent at the last level that I was at. And now that I get to this next level, that's again, the beautiful thing about sports, it kind of shows it to you, but the same thing happens in, in a lot of, you know, businesses. And, you know, I had a lot of friends that went to work for Goldman and Merrill Lynch and, you know, a lot of the investment banking firms. And, you know, they may have thought that they worked really hard in college and then they got to the next level and they realized, oh my goodness, 
I didn't work hard at all. And so it's, you know, I think the best way is having a teacher, a coach, somebody that you respect, that's an outsider coming in and being able to have the, the empathy to, you know, you know, empathize with where you're at is like, look, I know it feels like you're at a 10 right now, but what I'm telling you is I've watched this process hundreds, if not thousands of times with people. And you're actually at a three, you have so much more in the tank that you've never tapped into. And what we're going to do over the next year is we're going to help you move from a three to a six, and we're going to get more and more out of you. Um, But without outside coaching, are, you know, we're more than likely to move towards that homeostasis and that, that comfortability of, you know, protect, you know, keep something in the tank because we don't know what's coming. We still have those, you know, kind of survival instincts inside of us that are always going to push us towards leaving stuff in the tank and not finishing empty. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you never want to have the realization when you get to the next level that you weren't working hard, that, you know, that, oh my God, I'm now, I'm now playing catch up. Um, so, all right. When I think of mastery, which is kind of where we're at here, I think of both hard work and I think of exactitude. And so I want to change gears just a, or move a click over to exactitude. Um, in my mind, there's a big difference between doing something 95% correctly and doing something 100% correctly. Um, in fact, sometimes it can be all the difference. Um, small, small adjustments can have compounding impacts uh, on outcomes, especially when you multiply them by the number of repetitions that, that mastery often requires. Um, so, the, so the question is, you know, when we think of attention to detail and precision, um, is that the difference between good, good and great? I think at times, yes. I think that's also a very slippery slope because if we, if you think about it um, in terms of a historical context, if we believed in exactitude and doing what they believed was exactly the, the, you know, the very best thing and not differentiating from that whatsoever 200 years ago, then there would have never been improvements that got us to the exactitude that we talk about today. Yeah. If people hadn't tried, experimented, and failed in many different ways, then we would have never figured out and found new ways of doing things better and new levels of exactitude. Yep. So it's kind of it's kind of tricky. I think that um, you know, and 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 this one's even it, it hits very near to my heart because I played for a guy. Uh, my first three years that, that was very, it was, that was his whole thing of there's a, there was, there's one way to play soccer and there's one way to pass the ball and there's one way of doing things. Well, I sucked at it. I was terrible at doing things that way. That was very traditional. Um, I was one of the best in the country at doing things in a non-traditional way. Hmm. Um, even when I go speak today and the work that I do um, and used to do, I'm, I'm 99% retired, but I was, I would never tell somebody to do things the way that I did them. But if I tried to do things in an exactitude way that other people in my craft did them, it would never work. The impact would be 
10% or less than it was whenever I did them in the way that I did them, which was very, you know, outside of the box and very different. And so I think that it's, you know, there's, there's, there's certain areas of life where that exactitude matters a lot. But I think that sometimes we don't appreciate the fact that it's usually through failed experiments that we get improvements and advancements. And sometimes things come out of that that we didn't even, you know, know could work. There's been, you know, so many different products that we have today that were failures. But then when they were repositioned for something else, they were actually really beneficial for society um, in a whole different way that had never been thought of that way. Yeah. So I, 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 you might have just answered the question, but I'm going to ask it again just to make sure that I've got it. So you were a situation where you didn't do things the normal way. But the goodness of that is I can ask you, how did you hone in on what the little things were that you had to do faithfully in order to accomplish the big things that you've accomplished, right? Like the the process of figuring out what it is each person goes through and you're you're fully equipped to tell everybody how 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 they could do it for themselves, right? Well, yeah, and I think that the when it comes to that, I think one of the biggest things is is putting yourself in situations where you're forced to break down, where you're forced into tougher situations than you're than you want to be able to perform in. So whether that's, you know, one of the ways that I honed my public speaking was, you know, first I started out with one of the toughest speech teachers in the country and John English at Vanderbilt. And, you know, you'd give us you'd give a five, 10, 15 minute speech. And not only would you were you graded based off of the speech that you delivered, but then you had to defend it when he would aggressively attack you in a, you know, like a lawyer about all the different points that you made, you'd be able to have to have, you know, the research that backed those things up. But then I started going in and I started speaking in some of the toughest places around from the projects to, you know, really impoverished schools to, you know, in situations whenever the, you know, the, the speaker would stop working or the lights would go out in a, in a 700 seat auditorium. And I got people all the way at the back and the auditorium's only half full and I don't quit. I continue on. And I, you know, there's just so many different ways that what we try and do and try and create and encourage the people that we get to work with is how do you make your training faster, harder, and more challenging than the actual environment that you're going to compete in or perform in so that things slow down for you when you're in that moment instead of knowing I mean we all know that when we get into those moments things speed up things get faster they get harder so why not try and create a tougher environment in your everyday life so that whenever you get to that performance it feels easy instead of the opposite and that doesn't matter how you necessarily do it. Now, again, this is the hard part of, you know, if you do something that is that does have a coach, well, then you have to submit to their authority. If you have a boss, then you have to submit to their authority. If you're an assistant coach, you have to submit to their authority. And so what I always tell people is um, either submit or quit and do it on your own. 
And that's the hard part that I wish going backwards that I had had somebody that kind of helped harness some of my energy into stuff like that of like, look, your stubborn energy is great. We just need to get it moving in a beneficial and constructive way instead of fighting the authority figure. If you don't want to do it this way, then transfer. If you don't want to do it this way, then quit. There's options that you have, but you've got to submit to the authority and the system that you're underneath. Um, But otherwise, I think it's, you know, if you're in an area where you're able to experiment and do those things, um, or you're under a, you know, an authority that allows you that freedom, then it's, honing that and trying to do it to the best of your ability and or tweaking, figuring out, experimenting with new ways. But, you know, you look at the the PGA tour right now and Bryson DeChambeau is completely making everybody rethink, you know, their golf game. He's complete like, and golf is such an exactitude game. And yet he's making people today. I just went and got a driver that's five inches longer than the normal driver that I play with to experiment with. Cause I'm like, you know what, maybe, you know, this could help my game. I don't know. I'm used to playing with the driver that's two and a half inches shorter, but maybe if I play with one that's three and a half inches longer, it could do something else without Bryson DeChambeau doing that and being willing to, you know, uh, have people think that he's crazy and that he's an idiot and he's going to fail we, we wouldn't have gotten there. So it's just, in my opinion, it's being willing to put that time in and beat on your craft and do things your way and then showing up and seeing, okay, did this work? Did it not? All right, let's, let's adjust. Or I believe in this, let's keep going. That, well, one, it's a great answer, but two, it's also a really good transition uh, answer. And that, you know, what you're, I, I, I want to move into talking a little bit about hard right? Everyone is going to yeah. experience hard in their lives. It's not a choice, right? The choice right. is there's some ability to influence when things that are hard will happen, some. Um, one can do the work in the dark when no one's watching. Mm-hmm. One can put in the sweat today, and one can learn to handle pressure, as you talked about it, in ways that make hard way less hard when the bright light, um, according, you know, as I mentioned in the Ali quote, Uh, is on and everyone's watching, right? And so since this is a conversation about tough-mindedness or mental toughness, um, and folks will sometimes quit uh, when things get hard, can you talk about how you respond to, uh, cope with, even embrace things that are hard so that you you don't quit? Yeah. Uh, Again, I just think it's that, it's that choice. It's it's becoming more aware, I think, for most people of that hard is not a choice. You're going to experience hard. Where do you want to experience it? Um, And so the more intentional you are about experiencing hard and controlled environments that you are controlling, then the the easier it's going to be in the non-controlled environments the more that you're intentional about, um, you know, creating those environments, intentionally moving into those environments, then the, 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 the greater the control over, you know, where you're going to experience the hard actually is. But if you just, you know, if you just kind of go through life and you, you know, want to let your circumstances dictate when, the hard is going to be there, 
um, you know, there's going to be a lot less control over that. There's, you know, there's hard is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. Um, you know, but where you experience those things has a great deal to do with, are you intentionally seeking them out? Are you intentionally putting them in your environment or are you running from them? And again, we just live in a society where, um, you know, we're a pill popping, uh, fast food, instant gratification, Instagram, Insta everything. And we want it now. We want it fast. We don't want to play the long game. We want to play the short game. And, and so then we're going to experience hard in different places and at different times that we probably don't have control over the same way that we would if we were intentional about, um, you know, creating those type of environments on a day to day, moment to moment basis. And believing that anything that happens to me is in my best interest and an opportunity for me to learn and grow. Yeah. All right. Well, look, then, then let's make that at the end. Joshua, um, thank you very much. I think this is a, an important conversation for Intangibles podcast, and it is, in my mind, essential to success. So I appreciate your thoughts and guidance here. Well, thank you so much for giving me the platform and time and opportunity to come on and uh, do my best to share another struggler's, uh, you know, things that I've learned along the way. Appreciate it. This has been Intangibles. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and many other podcast platforms. You can also find it at its home on the web, which is www.intangiblespodcast.com. I'm Steve Berg. Thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode.